Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses podcast. folks i'm christian haynes with gamers with glasses and i'm joined tonight by don everhart hello and roger whitson hi and this is episode 18 of the gamers with glasses show we just got a general show for you tonight nothing special except the usual words about games and other miscellaneous but we've got some good games to talk about i think uh and these include games like death door death door and uh Dying Light, and a whole lot more Solar Ash. Um, but before we do that, let me just do a couple of announcements. One is if you haven't already heard it, you should check out our interview with Noah Wardrop Fruin on his book, How Pac-Man Eats. We'll also be publishing an excerpt from Noah's book, uh, How Pac-Man Eats, on GTA 4 in the next couple of days. Uh, we are also going to be having some Game of the Year articles coming soon with our own special spin on it, which is to say, some of these will be ranked lists, but some of these will be musings, let's say, um, or maybe just greatest disappointments. That'll probably be my list. Always on nice the games we're playing. <laughs> I'm just greatest I mean, disappointment I'm just... is me and movies in 2021. A far mm-hmm. easier list than top 10 2021 movies. That's fair. <laughs> I do feel like I've had a lot of games that I've liked this year, but I've had almost more that I've been disappointed with. Um, oh. But the big one was the arcane game. The big one was Deathloop, which has just not stuck with me in any significant way. But more on the that, big one for me was Avengers, which like I knew. I when forget it was, that it was I even a game. It. I didn't even. Get it. <laughs> no. I was so mad. I I thought it would be some like when. Before I started hearing <laughs> was... about it, like, I was like, "Oh, this is going to be the event." Their answer to Marvel Spider Man. Which, nope, not at all. So, the worst part is it even feels like the studio didn't want to make it. You know, I mean, they should have let them continue making Deus Ex. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Hopefully, that's what they're on now, but we know it's not. Uh, I mean, that, that we, we all know that's not happening. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm actually making the next Deus Ex. I'm just, that's just oh. a, right now, it's just notes in a notebook, but you know, soon enough. That has more appeal almost. Yeah, I'd love, right. I'd love to see. Christian Haynes, Warren Spector's Deus Ex 3. Oh my God. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, all right. So, Roger, you want to start us off with some Death Door? Sure. Um, Death Door just came out uh, recently for the PS5. I think it came out a couple of months ago um, for Xbox. Xbox and um, PC. And PC. Um, and I've been enjoying it. I'm about done with it. It's sort of a Zelda-like 
um, from Devolver Digital and Acid Nerve. Uh, and the latter did Titan Souls for Souls-like fans. Um, this, this game has been sort of advertised by a lot of people as being kind of a cross between Dark Souls and, and Zelda. I don't really see it that way. I don't really see the Dark Souls elements. There's like um, more tumbling than, than, than jumping. And there's a little bit of a learning curve. Um, I would say it, maybe it's a little more tonal just because the, the game deals a lot with death. Um, the one, the one sort of, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, it has this sort of cute aesthetic. You play a crow that's called a reaper. Um, and it's clear towards the end of the game that the, the grim reaper is sort of outsourcing the reaping to these, to these crows. Um, and it's very cute. Like you, so, so the, you have all these trophies that are kind of like shiny things. So like as a crow, you're collecting all of these shiny like junk trinkets which i think is kind of cute um there's some really good dungeon puzzles that are very reminiscent of, of zelda um they have this system of doors that kind of make it easy to fast travel to various places on the map so once you get going with the game it goes pretty quickly um and then and then in terms of this question of is it difficult it's definitely harder than 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 some games um and but honestly, the learning curve isn't really as deep as other souls like. So it might be good for those people who want a kind of kind of souls experience. I, I don't know, kind of an experience that's somewhat similar, maybe that has that little bit of that of, of that learning curve, um, but doesn't want sort of the sort of the real. Well, I don't want to say real because that's problematic. But like the the sort of dude bro get good kind of kind of uh uh element that it has just a splash of of that difficulty just a splash and that splash is a little little boss named betty who made me scream at the top of my lungs <laughs> and i think i have successfully <laughs> i've successfully got my entire apartment complex thinking i'm a madman so i i think i'm okay i think i had that i got that experience out of the game so that's did, good did you yell betty did, did, did i did specific <laughs> I did. It's a it's a it's a very obnoxious boss, um, but it's the only boss that's like that, which I think is a little interesting. Um, Can I tell you that I had when I was living in Minneapolis, uh, when I had moved to this one street, uh, it seemed like a great place to a great sort of area in the neighborhood. But then every day in the afternoon, there would be this person that would come by every day and scream, "Billy!" repeatedly for like 10 or 15 minutes. And it was always right during my writing time. And for some reason, the repetition of it, like started slowly driving me crazy. Like I felt like I was in an Edgar Allan Poe story, like the black yeah, was, cat or something. It was like was turning saying, the screw every day. It sounds kind of like a Stephen King novel or something like that. I'm just imagining Roger just screaming, Daddy! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I definitely have that. Um, there's no healing flask. So basically that's the, the hardest part of the game. They're only yeah. the only way to heal is you have these little seeds that you pick up around uh the world and it and you can plant the seeds at little pots that will grow this this flower that heals you. And but it 
but it regenerates every time you die, every time you leave or die or whatever. So it's, it's fairly, and they're fairly common. So it's not a huge problem, but you know, certainly when you're going after a boss and you can't heal at all, like that can be, that can be kind of frustrating. Um, but I will say that I rarely, apart from the Betty thing, I rarely found it so difficult as to be annoying, even in that sort of good, annoying Dark Souls way. So um, overall, I liked it. Um, I, I would, those of you who are looking for a Zelda adventure with maybe really light uh, Souls elements, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So that's my thought. That was my experience of the game. I don't think I've, I think I played like half to two thirds of it. And I think I just stopped because another couple of games came out that I was more interested in. But it definitely yeah. had that like, oh, this is giving me some of those like Dark Souls vibes and early <clears throat> on when I'm actually still enjoying it, but without ever getting to that point where I'm just like, fuck this, I have better things to do. So you guys further did than not... you would have in a Dark Souls. Oh. Yes, yes. You exactly. did not get the Betty though, I bet. Probably not. I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> it beat- sounds like Betty's very yeah, memorable. It is. I beat, I beat two of the bosses boss. that weren't mini bosses, I want to say. Like, I got to like yeah. three or four biomes. I forget which. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. like one of the last bosses. I, I love the, I love the art in the game. I love the vibe. Mm. I love the quirkiness of, you know, the kind of Kafka bureaucracy, but with crows and swords. And uh, I think they're swords, right? Yeah, um, and there's sword. There's a sword. There are knives. There's a, right. a thunder warhammer, and then like a great sword if you find it. That's kind of the harder one to mm. find. And it felt like it had decent upgrades that it gave you at a decent clip as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. And it was like yeah, bucks, like right. I thought it was yeah yeah actually I think maybe it is. I'm not. It's not yeah, expensive. I, I mean, it's twenty a, or thirty. Yeah. Um, I thought it was. There are some hilarious things about crows. One of the things that did get me is that there's a lot of places that fall off in this world. And I'm thinking, I'm kind of sitting here, I'm thinking, this is a crow? Like, couldn't the crow fly? And I've had friends I'm describing to, uh, you know, describing the game to ask me, well, well, how does the crow like hold the weapon? And I'm like, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> it isn't something adorable, like in its beak? No, you have it like you're holding it with your like wings or something. They don't, right, Christian? Yeah, I think so. I I mean, it doesn't, because it has that overhead animation style, it kind of doesn't need to spell it out, you know? Yeah, you kind of don't worry too much about it. I just think it's funny. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine if they had to actually render it and like the sort of full 3D breath of uh, Dark Souls, you know? Right. It'd still probably be less janky um mm-hmm. well yeah you, you can't take the jank out of a from soft game um, no, that's you, yeah you that's just part can't of the, part of the point publishers have tried <laughs> many major <laughs> publishers and studios have tried and none of them have succeeded in getting from to <laughs> to unfrom itself right i'm trying right. to remember i mean my brief experience with Sekiro, I'm trying to remember if there was any janky. Mm. That felt less janky. I don't know. It's smoother, but it's it does have its moments of pure, unadulterated 
scream worthy frustration more yeah, so than exactly. i would say with any other from game it, it, i mean Sekiro is the from game that convinced me that i no longer had the time to invest in actively playing their games um not because i thought it was bad i actually i enjoyed so many elements of it oh. but i knew that uh from prior experience it would take me a few dozen tries to get through a boss that was very obviously designated as a wall uh for further progression and i asked myself if i really had it in me to do that or if i would rather do other things and the answer came up i'd rather do other things which it hadn't for previous souls games uh or bloodborne and in that moment i thought yeah no i think i'm good i think i think i'm good on this style of game and sekiro is the one that that did that uh more than any of the other games in sort of its from's recent uh output i yeah so there definitely is like kind of really annoying moments in the game but i will say there are a few things in life that are as pleasurable as deflecting in that game deflecting mm. in that game is amazing it's amazing just the, the tactile feel of it is just yeah and especially great you, sound design really yeah. fantastic sound design on those parries yeah so don you're playing unsighted which i don't think is unrelated to dust store it, oh, it is ah, not ah, ah. uh it's not unrelated to it uh in fact one could say it is another successful indie Zelda-like released in the last few months. Um, but from the sound of it compared to Death Story, there are some, uh, actually a, a good amount of, of differences involved um, that make it a, a very different game as, as I've been playing it. And maybe it's because it takes uh, some different inspirations. Um, I do think that it takes the most uh, inspiration from overhead Zeldas of the early era, Link to the Past, Link's Awakening maybe in particular. Um, But it also stews in so many recent uh, game influences, both from indie and larger developers at once. There's a sprinkle of Nier and Nier Automata in it. there is a little bit, yes, of, of the Souls games because there are, there are corpse runs in it. When, when you're defeated, you drop half of your accumulated oh. uh, currency and that you use for upgrades. And if you successfully return without dying again, you can pick it all back up. Uh, and there is some Hyperlight Drifter in there. I know we're going to talk about another Heart Machine game in a, in a little bit, but there's uh, Heart, Heart, Hyperlight Drifter is itself a successful indie Zelda-like of recent years uh, with some great innovations for movement and timing and for the ability to use uh, projectiles and swords at the same time, uh, which Unsighted builds in with even more flexibility. Um, it has really fantastic fluid movement. The, the feeling of playing the game is deeply fluid. It has this pixel art style um, that wouldn't be out of place uh, with alongside uh, Hyperlight Drifter or maybe uh, Sword and Sorcery, some of those uh, other indie mm. hits. Um, and uh, it has 
an excellent soundtrack that goes along with its perpetually rainy setting. Um, it, it, I'm genuinely surprised at how absorbing I find the game to play. Uh, it, I think it has a wonderful curve as far as allowing players to accumulate a wide variety of tools uh, and then a surprising variety of tools as well, and then building them into the dungeons um, and building them in maybe even better than some of the early Zeldas because the dungeons ask you to use the whole of your toolbox or are responsive to you using different builds as you like as you've accumulated and not just one or two hmm. of the primary items you find in that dungeon. Um, even if the focus of the dungeon is still on like, here's the cool new item that you found in the dungeon. And this is the focus of a lot of the puzzles. It also has a story mechanic that I think is, is being discussed more than any other aspect of the game, um, which is that uh, you play as an Android. Most of the other beings you encounter are robots. And everyone has a ticking clock on them. Uh, with a, a resource that allows them to retain roughly their sanity uh, tied to an in-game clock. So depending on how much of this power they have left, they may or may not become one of the just sort of thoughtless anonymous robots that you encounter and fight through as enemies. Um, and you have the option of finding items that will prolong their lifespan uh, or even including the main characters. So everything is running on this ticking clock timer. There's items you can give to try and preserve, you know, this item shop person, this robot that's chill and just wants to fish, uh, your fairy advisor in true Zelda setting. Any and all of them are on that countdown and they're countdowns of different lengths depending on the character. And it builds in, uh, a fascinating bit of, you know, uh, utilitarian or player preference for characters, uh, or uh, you know, this this bit of decision making that otherwise is often absent uh, in in Zelda's other than say maybe Majora's Mask, um, and it's a really really interesting mechanic. Further props though to the developers, you can turn it off. If that kind of thing doesn't sound like it's for you and you think, oh, I, I don't want to play an adventure game where I might be locked out of being able to upgrade my weapons or train with parries, or I just don't want to see the robot that is basically built like a sweet old grandma deteriorate into nothing, that will stress me out while I'm trying to play this adventure game. <laughs> they, they say, all right. You can, you can turn off the countdown at any time. You're just going to miss out on the parts of the story where there are characters that say things like, hey, I know it's unethical for me to sell you this stuff only in exchange for the precious life-giving resource, but I'm cool with that. I'll be unethical. If you want my stuff, cough it up. Uh, and if, if you don't have to balance that against the value of prolonging the sanity of your fellow robots, uh, the, I do think the game would lose quite a bit, at least for me. I'm keeping it on. 
That's great. The existential dread of, well, everybody go insane surrounding you. It, I actually worry about that on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's very 2021. You've got to, <laughs> and, you know, if, if you just give them just break. a little bit, they've got 24 more hours of sanity. Just, just 24 more hours. What would you do great. with 24 more hours of sanity? I mean, I... In, in this case, I think I'm the big fishing robot. I think, you yeah. know, just like just sit there and catch a few more fish and wait, wait for the clock to tick down further. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm not letting the big fishing robot go. I don't care if there you go. it's not the most valuable trader <laughs> involved. That thing, I'm keeping it around. <laughs> oh so one of the things that you and I, Don, have had in common lately, well, one is a specific game, which is SMT5, which is to say uh, Shin Megami Tensei 5, but more generally just playing some turn-based RPGs. And I just want to give a shout out to Square Enix's uh, Math Battles Simulator, uh, also known as Dungeon Encounters, which I don't know if folks have seen hmm. this amazingly stripped down RPG the entire story of which, from what I can tell, is a paragraph given to you at the beginning of the game in text. Uh, Very NES no era story. of them. Oh my God. It's like, it's like, it's set back from NES to like 1960s, like role playing, like tabletop role playing game style or those early like 80s uh, dungeon crawlers that I was playing on DOS, right? Like mm. that even then we're already being emulated um, on DOS from earlier systems, from like Commodores and stuff. Uh, I mean, there's just a map of each floor and you go around the map and there are numbers and the numbers designate different kinds of encounters and there are very minimal animations and I don't know why, but I love it. And I, I mean, I watch TV while I'm doing it, right? Like it's, you know, I don't know if I would enjoy it as much if I weren't listening to podcasts or watching TV. But there's something just about the grind of it, the numbers, the discrete quality of like, there's 99 floors, you know, I think there's 99 and you just go down, you descend. And I think there's some narrative reason about something to do with a village and an evil. I don't know, it doesn't matter. Uh, but there are different monsters on different floors and in different numbers. And there are different like interesting mechanics. Like one of my characters got petrified by a statue monster or something and after i won the battle i could no longer move because you can't move with a character petrified in your party so i had to ditch that character which thankfully in a very nice log in the game it gives you an exact like three digit uh code for where they are like floor number and x and y uh axes numbers uh, mm -hmm. So you can go pick them up later, but I just, you know, instead I just left them there and I went and recruited another party member uh, and started leveling them up, you know, and I had to basically keep them out of combat for the most part. I just put a bunch of armor on them, but this is, this is from uh, some of the folks behind Final Fantasy 12 and it actually uses the same combat system. So the ATP oh. combat system. Uh, wow. Yeah. Right. So, it's like, <laughs> you know, so you have gambits, you're, you're, you're telling all of these different party members what to do more or less on a script yeah that and, and then goes like, with all of these encounters yeah and it uses like player points so instead of like 
leveling your character up like in some complex manner. Instead, you're just getting more of these player points, which just enable you to put different gear on. So it's really gear centered, right? You have to have a certain number of points for each gear item you put on, right? So like for what, when I had to bring in a character who was now level one and I needed to level them up, I just put all of like, I didn't even give them a weapon. I just put all the points against some armor to keep them from getting hurt when somebody did like, you know, area attacks against you. And I say area attacks, but there's no like spatial awareness here. There's just like a grid on each side. I mean, sort of like spreadsheets to game. The know? idea of splash damage is, you know, it, it's, it, yeah, it sounds like spreadsheets or just systems, right? Like yeah. you're interested in, in game systems, maybe more than some of the other aspects of them, at least when you're playing this kind of game. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been, I've been playing that. I've been playing... Uh, Shin Megami Tensei Five, and I'm playing Ruined King, um, which is a, I mean, it's not really a riot game. It's set in uh, the riot uh, realm of Runeterra that League of Legends is set in, but it was made by Airship Syndicate, uh, who made, how was that Joe Madeira art game? Um, uh, I mean, it was one of those kind of quiet, hits among people that really like turn-based RPGs. Uh, Battle Chasers Night War, which uh, maybe Roger, you right. remember Battle Chasers from the 90s comics during that like Todd McFarlane era. Yeah, absolutely. Sharp edges and bulging biceps. Um, oh, it was so great. It was amazing. Uh, <laughs> Spider-Man's webs were just like, you know, clouds of icky sticky. Uh, everyone had Everyone had pouches everywhere. And oh carried God, guns, couches, even if yeah. they didn't need them. I think oh, Superman cable, at one right? point had guns, and it's like, why would Superman have guns? But he did. Yeah. No, it he does actually sound hurt people less lightless. with the guns than with his fists. So it was, I mean, right. kind okay. of a merciful yeah. thing. That makes um, sense. <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't know. I, I'm playing that. When that's that's got more of the story, and the story's okay. It's pretty good. Um, it got me to like look up some League of Legends sort of. Uh, lore to kind of put some things together um, but i think it stands alone pretty well but it's got it's got another great sort of turn day system with and it adapted the lanes that i understand are part of league of legends but turned into a really cool mechanic within the turn-based combat that allows you to speed up or slow down your actions and is basically all about initiative right like initiative in the role playing like tabletop role playing sense, that's such an right? interesting reverse step for something right. like League uh, and Riot, where the the whole foundation of something like League of Legends uh, as a massively online battle arena or MOBA, MOBIDGE, if you prefer, for, uh, comes out of a, I mean, it comes out of a Defense of the Ancients route, which itself comes out of a mod of Warcraft 3. So you have this lineage of something that was a real-time strategy game that then transformed in Warcraft 3 into being a hero-centric individual character with kind of mobs around them of underling strategy game that gets transformed into, this is really just about playing heroes against other people. And the map is always the same with these assorted lanes. And that's a huge part of the strategy. Um, and then back turn-based RPG employing the MOBA uh, symbolism maybe as, as part of it. That's, 
curious journey. And I will just, you know, for the record, say folks like Riot has some issues and they're still dealing with some really messy and messy because of them fall out because of the way they handle sexual harassment and wage inequalities, gendered wage inequalities, um, wage gaps. And so everybody should know that and pay attention to that. And they're still dealing with arbitration clauses and, you know, sort of the way in which those work. Um, but they're making a hugely successful push right now with shows like Arcane and with like games that are being sort of like surprisingly good that aren't League of Legends. And it's weird. Yeah. Um, have you all watched um, Have you all watched Arcane at all? I've been curious about it, but I haven't seen it. It's the best animated thing I've watched since Into the Spider-Verse. Whoa. Whoa. And... <laughs> It's art is what? on par with Into the Spider-Verse. You mean like, you mean just that from a purely uh, visual standpoint or- It's overall? got a great story too. I don't think the story is yeah. as good at Into the Spider-Verse, but it is a surprisingly good story about class conflict. Huh. That huh. is- It is I am weirdly shocked, good. Uh, considering six years to work Maybe it's just the, the standard that I think Spider-Verse set for innovative animation, but that is such a huge compliment. The art is so good and they let them experiment. They got six years to work on this. So that's part of it. It's a Paris-based studio that had been doing all of the animation for like all the side things. So like every time they would release like a little teaser video for like a new character, a new hero or whatever in League of Legends, this was a studio that would do it. And then on the side this entire time for like six years, they've also been working on the series. And it's funny it's the season two and they say it's not going to take them as long but i was like what is not as long this is mean we get season two in four years um <laughs> and i'd be fine with that you know it's like but yeah. it, it is I, I think it's everybody should watch one episode um or like the first episode i guess although the episode that's amazing is this episode that sort of incorporates hip-hop in a really interesting way and changes up the huh. animation style um huh. yeah it's weirdly good and I said this, like, I watched this on a whim. I had no interest in this. I had just, like, it popped up on Netflix and I pressed play. Hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Um, it, I won't be playing League of Legends, but guess what? I did play Ruined King because of it. So, obviously, their push is working on some idiots, right. um, like myself. Uh, uh, yeah. Cross-media promotion. I know. I'm a sucker. Um, <laughs> you know? But I'm the same person that likes buying, like, you know, the Marvel Atlas, you know, that's like a atlas of all the different realms in the Marvel universe. So I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> tell us about Shin Megami Tensei and maybe specifically five, but also maybe talk about Shin Megami Tensei, which is what we all know for those huge fans out there is really just a spinoff of the Persona series from what I understand. Oh, so much pain. The much more important Persona So much series. trolling. So, so much. Um, <laughs> Okay, so uh, speaking of dungeon crawlers, Shin Megami Tensei is a long-running series uh, in which you go around, initiate turn-based battles with, well, the game calls them demons, but they're so indiscriminate in what kind of mythological figure and cultural basis of that figure that it is that that's really just a catch-all for just about any sort of symbol symbolic design that uh this 
you know, group of, of Japanese designers wants to pull from gets pulled into the game and you go through a setting, you get into fights with them. And the major distinctive aspect of it is you talk to them, you talk to the demons, uh, in your goal in talking to the demons is to convince them to join your party. And then you now you have a party of uh, main character and a bunch of demons that fight with you. And you can do lots of things with these demons. You can convince them to have interactions uh, with the demons that you then fight. Uh, you can fuse them together and make new and unexpected demons that are more powerful. Um, and, and when I say, again, demons, this is this is very general. I, I had a you know a very easy joke that uh, the fifth iteration of this made simple within a few hours of playing it, where my party consisted of one very stereotypical looking leather winged demon, one angel that calls on the powers of light to heal your party, and uh, puss in boots. I like so, puss in boots. <laughs> who's <laughs> identified as, as, as Kate Sith uh, in the game. But that, that's the kind of party we're talking about. That's the kind of demons we're talking about when we, when we say we're playing Shin Megami Tensei. You have mermaids, and then you have mermaids that are kind of more like the shape of water creature. And you have starfish that are kind of like Starro and dragons and demons that are fused with chariots that look very phallic, uh, very deliberately so, and, and just, and everything in between. And there's usually a plot uh, about destroying some form of divinity or resisting some kind of chaos or order. It's, it's often your choice and this is in your hand. For those of you who are too online and you were on Twitter one day and you saw Attack and Dethrone God in the trending column. That was brought to you by Shin Megami Tensei. The announcement of the fifth iteration of it had so many people making Attack and Dethrone God jokes that it made that phrase trend in the United States. Uh, and, you know, bless Atlas for that. That alone is actually wonderful to me. Uh, but it's just that kind of game. It, it, it is at once very self-serious in an anime-ish kind of way. And on the other hand, it, it cares absolutely nothing about any connections between mythologies that it has just thrown absolutely carelessly into this game uh, by the hundreds. There's so many different options. And as a result, as you go through the game, almost nothing else really even matters to me while I play it because there's always another demon that I'm trying to recruit and maybe I'm not in a high enough level to convince them to join me yet or I just screwed up the negotiation and I need to find them again or I just need to go through an, to a new area where I can find new demons and it's just you know in that way uh, the same loop as Pokemon except that instead of throwing balls at things I have conversations where they say things like you know hey Come here. I really wanted to tell you last time when I was fighting you. I'm really sorry, and I need just just come a little close. And you can be like, "Okay, I'll do that," or "No, this is an obvious trap," and you don't know which one will actually convince the demon to like you. Uh, so <laughs> you have to be okay with some punishment in this game. I will say. I mean, oh, so yeah. I'm, I've been playing this off and on, and, and I just want to put. I just want to say for folks out there, 
who maybe are not very into turn-based RPGs, which I would have included myself in uh, up to two years ago. And the thing about turn-based RPGs as a parent is you can like slip them into your day in a really nice way. And you can actually like watch a kid and play a turn-based RPG in a way that you cannot with an action game, let alone a friggin' Dark Souls game, which I will say like getting into Dark Souls is really hard when you're a parent of a young child. Uh, because you don't get to be like, I'm playing a boss in Dark Souls and I can't pause it. Sorry, go do your own thing. Um, yeah, the lack of a pause is really kind of a kind of a horrible yeah. thing, right? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Like it's one game. Let that game do its thing, right? I don't really care. Um, but like turn-based RPGs, great. Shin Megami Tensei Five One is absolutely fucking absurd because of this mythology, which is amazing, right? It's just like, why do I have an angel? And why are angels also seemingly like an integral part of this plot? And what does God have to do with any of this? But also, why are there mermaids? And why do the mermaids live on land uh, sometimes? Why why does this goblin live in an urn and also float? Why is Puss in Boots hanging out with these weird random ass demons? Um, You know, there's all kinds of questions you could ask, but you don't ask these questions. You just get better demons and you recruit them. And you enter negotiations with them, which is the best part, but it's also utterly random and unpredictable and will piss you off but then you just have to take it and try and have to let it be yeah Um, because you don't know you you can try and think out your response to a demon and be like well okay this demon they kind of seem like they're i don't know rambunctious and they they want me to to go with it and uh, you know i'm i'm gonna talk shit to them right back and maybe they're the kind of demon that wants me to talk shit back they talk shit to me i talk shit to them we get along they join my party and oh no they've frozen my entire party and i'm dead yeah because i you should, i mean in fact actually i think thinking that hard about it is probably a mistake because it if is. you try to logic it out like <laughs> you'll get annoyed when your logic doesn't work whereas if you just go any mini mini mo i mean you're just as likely to get it right the i oh. i honestly think that a lot of the randomness of the success in a negotiation is the Atlas designer's way of playing with players. It's a, it is a little bit trollish, but because it's set up as a social interaction, it is almost irresistible to me to try. And I only give myself like a second. I don't second guess myself, but I do. I can't resist thinking, okay, this is Puss in Boots. What would Puss in Boots want me to say <laughs> in reaction to this absurd question that they've just po- posed mm-hmm. me? And they can ask you, you know, they, they just say anything uh, to you. And I, and I can't resist it. And on the other hand, I know that somewhere on the other end, there's probably a designer going, it doesn't matter what you say to Puss in Boots, man. <laughs> <laughs> Why would that matter at all? It means nothing. And it's, it's sort of joyous in, in that way uh, where like you could try and build your own personal mythology of why you had an air elemental and the shape of water creature and a hydra in your party at the same time and what they had to do with each other. But the game doesn't care. It just says, yeah, congratulations. You've got an air elemental and a hydra and a... I don't, you know, uh, what's a what's a, it doesn't, who cares? This is, isn't, isn't this fun? 
Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's definitely a trip. I, I mean, I can't say it's like going to make me fall in love with the series or anything, but I'm glad I'm playing it. And I also don't feel bad about dipping in and out of it, right? Like there's not much of a story and maybe a story picks up more. I do hear that the story's maybe a little too decompressed for some folks liking that reviewed it. Uh, like it's a little mm. stretched out, um, not enough story beats like per hours you spend playing the game. Uh, but I don't know. I've just, again, I'm letting it be like a numbers game in a lot of ways with occasional quirky conversations and I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, it, it, it is definitely a game to be embraced, I think for what it is. Um, and, and for everything else that it could be, uh, to me, it just feels like, you know, the game offers a particular kind of fun. And that's it. And, and it's not shy about it. It's very clear. It doesn't try and there's no bait and switch involved here. It doesn't say, oh, and there's going to be a grand cosmic theological plot. Uh, it says, well, you know, yeah, there, there's going to be, you know, Lucifer is going to make an appearance or something, but it's not going to be a biblical plot here. You're, you know, go, go and run around this desert some more and fight some more demons. <laughs> Yeah. The last thing, I mean, we should, maybe we'll make it a quickish one because I uh, I am going to be uh, interviewing folks early tomorrow morning um, and for the next week and a half. Uh, but, you know, the last thing I just want to say is I've been playing a lot of games that have parkour in it, <laughs> especially Dying Light, and I wrote an article about it that will probably appear on the website next week. Uh, but the long story short, uh, of it is I really like Dying Light. It's fun to bounce off zombies' heads, um, which is maybe the best power-up I've uh, received in a game in a while. The ability to like jump on a zombie, bounce off their head, and then to like, a fence or a rooftop. Um, who knew their heads were that squishy? Uh, so I, I feel like elastic. the zombie thing, I feel like the zombie thing is really fascinating because like, you know, 10 years ago, it was like the thing. And it's it dwindled off a bit, but I haven't seen a huge like I really ne never saw a huge black backlash against the zombie genre, and it's still around. Like I, I just find that really interesting. I, yeah, I think, and you know there was a, a phrase. You know, people did talk about zombie fatigue uh, in media, and and it probably set in around a few seasons into Walking Dead, or if you're me. <laughs> one season into The Walking Dead. Uh, and, and so I, I do think that happened, but I'm then curious about, oh, but Dying Light is is still enjoyable and there's a sequel coming up. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is I barely care about the zombies and the most enjoyable part is not really killing them to me. It's more just like flying around the city and getting new movement abilities and, yeah, like it takes a while to get this grappling hook in the game, but when you do get the grappling hook, you do sort of feel like Spider-Man, which is ridiculous, but it's still more fun to just kind of like bounce around and you start learning routes through the city. And the thing is, the next Dying Light apparently, while still being, you know, a zombie game, is going to have even more focus on the people and it features more like levels of elevation, which is why they're also including a paraglider in it than I'm sure Breath of the Wild. Um, because apparently like people have just built up and are in a city that has skyscrapers and stuff. Uh, and you're just sort of like moving, but there's 
the ground level and there's like a sort of middle level and a top level. All of this is to say though, that it's scratching a certain itch an itch that also you know gets scratched by games like Mirror's Edge and Ghost Runner and others. And I think that part of it, you know, there's like the just base level of once you get into that groove of movement, it feels really good. But there's also something about the way in which like all of these games are to some degree about the disorientation we feel in cities because cities are a product of capital and capitalism. Uh, and there's a kind of alienation and parkour is the fantasy that you as an individual body could still master it, that you could make sense of the city through your feet, basically, mm. right? Um, mm. You know, and the, I won't get into the details, but in the article, I talk about Frederick Jameson's concept of cognitive mapping, which is like about this idea of like, we need like mental images, not just of our cities, but of our social systems and how our cities relate to them in order to make sense of our lives. And, and in a way, like parkour is like a way of not getting that. Mm by fantasizing about just doing it with your feet, right? Like, what if I don't need to make sense of it? I just need to get my feet to like bounce from point A to point B. And that's how I master the city. But at the same time, it also seems to like, be like, but we do need to figure out how to live in our cities in a way that's more than just like, you know, I walk from my house, the train station. I walk from the train station after I get off the train to the Starbucks. I walk from the Starbucks to work and then I take the same way home. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm, and mm-hmm. none of that is really autonomous. It's all just kind of governed by my work schedule. So I don't know. Okay. Um, that's like a highfalutin say of like, way of saying like, I, as much as I love hitting zombies with crowbars, I really like bouncing off their heads and then onto chain link fences and then from chain link fences on the rooftops and then from rooftops onto a bridge and from a bridge into the water and then the swim and do it all over again from the sewer. To go back to the highfalutin stuff, though, <laughs> uh, there is something interesting there where you mentioned these other uh, parkour games in the form of Mirror's Edge and Ghost Runner, which are more the sci-fi dystopia, uh, right. more impersonal dystopia, especially in Mirror's Edge, where everything is um, sort of been polished and color-coded right. out into these uniform, sterile spaces that you then run through. There's something interesting about the combination of that form of living with capitalist dystopia and zombies, which is a, mm. another, uh, uh, you know, fairly mm-hmm. clear living in under capitalism uh, yeah. analog and, and media trope. Uh, and, it, and it's just interesting to me that, oh, yeah, of course those could just collide in the same game. Uh, we make mm. zombie games, we make these other parkour cyberpunk dystopia games and what if we had a parkour zombie game and we just did those both at once all right kind of makes sense yeah no totally i mean i I, I, part of what was like sort of getting me to write this piece too was just like this the sort of dystopian like tenor that all these games take because you totally imagine i mean in a certain sense we've had it like games in which there's less dystopian elements in parkour and yet in video games most of them are dystopian in some way like even jet set radio which arguably is like a parkour game in some ways even as it's a rollerblading game or whatever um Uh, but it's also full of critiques of crooked cops and rapacious uh capitalism in the music industry yeah but i think what's interesting too is like what parkour as a gameplay element allows you to do is shift attention away from enemies 
and towards movement and environment. And in a certain sense, the environment, while not becoming the enemy itself, becomes like the set of obstacles, which makes you think about, okay, like, what does it mean for the environment itself to be the problem, right? What does it mean for like geography to be the issue? What does it mean that our cities are not like built by us and for us, but rather built by others nominally for us, but really usually for whoever gets to collect the rent. So I have kind of a stupid question about Jameson. <laughs> I don't think we should make this into a Jameson podcast. I know, I know. And it's not really- But, I, but it's my I'm fault. Just, I brought I'm, it up. I'm fascinated by this notion of maybe parkour. And, and I don't know in what way you address it in your piece or anything, but like this notion of, first of all, cognitive mapping on the one end, and then perhaps parkour as movement as- maybe a kind of somatic or affective, right, mapping. And I wonder if like that element is in some of this stuff too. Like, is there is there like a kind of sense in which like, it's not just that we have to like figure out cognitively our place amongst capital and capitalism and in the world, blah, 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 but we have to understand somatically and effectively how how that lines up as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, you know, so for folks who maybe aren't familiar, like Frederick Jameson is an American uh, Marxist cultural critic, teaches at Duke University, has written a bunch of books, over 30, et cetera. Uh, he's definitely older than 30, but I meant old, more than 30 books. Um, uh, Fred's a nice guy anyways. Uh, his teachers taught my teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, he makes this argument about cognitive mapping. That's about like trying to figure out our place within capitalism and within cities. Uh, it's mostly conceptual because he's a good Hegelian, which means he cares about concepts in a big sense, you know, social totalities and whatnot. Uh, but you know, when you read like the postmodernism book in that like 150 page long conclusion section, uh, you know, at the end he goes like, look, cognitive mapping was always secretly just another phrase for class consciousness. Uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's more or less what he says. Um, and he actually does sort of include like a bodily somatic element, right? Like you do have to like figure things out with your body as much as your brain. And because this is about how you feel going around in a city, right? Like it's what like, and I, I'm sure Don, you know, I know Don is familiar with this stuff, but like, it's, you know, a kind of psychogeographic notion too, mm. right? Like folks like Gita Bourne, Ian Sinclair and whatnot. And, you know, this notion that like, we have these routes that are constructed for us through cities. And they're not just like routes in a sense of like, oh, there's a sidewalk there and therefore I go there. But there's also like routines that are embedded in us by our work schedules and by capitalism and by state structures and all kinds of things. And then there's a question of like how we swerve from them, right? The Situationist, these like uh, kind of social and philosopher group in France would talk about derives, right? Like, which doesn't really translate very well from French to English, but you might as well just say like swerve. I don't know, swerve is a pretty good translation, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, you just get the swerve and like swerving, maybe you'll figure out something about like by breaking from your usual habits, maybe you'll figure out a way to like occupy a city differently, be different in your built environment. Got to swerve, man. You yeah, you got to swerve, swirl. You got to feel that swerve. Yeah. Roger's dancing, everybody. Um, <laughs> it, it's delightful. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. It's, 
it's making me think about things. Um, but let's talk about our non-game recommendations. Let's get out there. And uh, Roger, you go first. I'm going to start. Talk to us about the underground, are... the it, literal underground. Yeah. Well, have you all read this book, Robert McFarlane? It's been kind I of making around. I've read lots of quotations in other books I have been reading, yeah. in part because I've been writing about trees, which requires that you think about fungi. That right roots the mylocele the the network they uh, yeah, a lot of my exactly. eco-critical fan uh colleagues have been my environmental humanities colleagues have been like reading about this book for a couple of years and i've kept not reading it and decided to read it um recently and uh because i'm i i have some interest in you know notions of of deep time which is this which is this time of, of geology and of the earth, right? Um, the sort of millions of years that the earth has been around as opposed to, you know, what we, what human beings or some, some human beings think is a 5,000 year Christological kind of calendar, right? Like, so we had, so like deep time has been some sort of an interest of mine for, for a long time. And uh, Robert McFarland in this book, really is is charting deep time by sort of looking at all the things that exist beneath the surface, like literally underground, right? Um, beneath the ground, uh, beneath our feet. Um, and so there are all of these thematic chapters, some of which intersect with some of the things we've been talking about today. So he actually has a chapter on um, uh, Walter Benjamin talking about uh, uh, the flaneur and the, and the derive. Um, uh, urban exploring, uh, people who go into uh, abandoned uh, uh, underground uh, uh, sewers, right? And, and just explore these places that are often cut off. They, they frequently get arrested in doing so. Um, and they see it as sort of a part of them kind of going back to this question, Christian, that you raised of, of sort of cognitive mapping. Where do I exist in this place? And where are all the spaces that have been shut off to us, right? Um, and uh, the chapter I just looked at was all about um, thinking about caves as the sort of mythological liminal space between living and dying in a lot of, in a lot of religions. Um, and they had a, a, a chapter on pollution and electronic waste and the amount of time it takes to to, to get rid of nuclear waste, right? All of these things. And so it's a really interesting nonfiction book that sort of really takes a topic I think that a lot of us haven't really thought about, which is like, you know, what's going on underground, right? And how, how does it impact us? Um, and really brings it to light. And I, uh, I'm, I'm about maybe three fourths of the way through it and I'm really enjoying it. So uh, Underland. So the answer isn't that it doesn't impact us. No, it, it does impact us. Oh, okay, okay. If it didn't impact us. <laughs> that would be I mean, but it is, it is that, but I mean, you know, like we put things <laughs> underground to forget them, right? So that's part of it. Mm. Yeah, um, no, that's a good point. So. Repress, repress, repress. That's what I always say. Yeah. Never so and I are... the power of repression. Yeah, <laughs> no. It's, in a, in a, a fictional sense, I, I think the piece of media that Christian and I wanted to talk about certainly relates to some ideas of, mm. of deep time and its exploration. Y'all are talking about the TV show, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, it, it, was it a book? 
No. <laughs> Never. It, it would be difficult world, right? to talk about Foundation and not talk about Asimov a little bit. Okay, okay. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but uh, over the weekend, my partner and I watched all of the first season of uh, nice. the televised version of Foundation. And I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I went in with low expectations for the adaptation, despite uh, some very good casting decisions. Um, Lee Pace as uh, the day version of this trinary empire clone uh, that exists in genetic time that passes through centuries. So there's always a, a version of young, middle, and old emperor making all the decisions. And the casting of Lee Pace as, as the middle uh, emperor of that is fantastic. Um, For folks who don't know Lee, who Lee Pace is and what he does, uh, you should watch the show Halt and Catch Fire. But because not enough people have watched that show, I'll just say that Lee Pace does cocky imperial bastard better than john ham in mad men i would i would co-sign that Mike um he he's, he's the also, one that in halt and catch fire i'm really sorry he's the one that plays the steve jobs kind of like like entrepreneur like yeah exactly okay, cool. yeah like the one who well never mind i, I won't spoil uh, it also woefully underused in by marvel as ronan the accuser in yeah, guardians yeah. of the galaxy yes yeah, what yeah. idiots what did they do that for <laughs> these these fools God. at disney and, casting this guy who can exude arrogance and menace um physically and facially and in tone of he's he's terrific at it and so as they, a representative of empire he's just he's an amazing casting he they well, just really quick they underused an amazing character in ronan the accuser true and then they underuse an amazing actor in an amazing character, right? <laughs> like it's horrible. It, it's it's so true. It was just wow. Okay, you have this really interesting character, this actor who actually is probably pretty well cast if you actually use the character well, and you just sidelined him for a couple of Chris Pratt jokes. That is shameful. Uh, but if if you think that's shameful, and then you watch Foundation, you get all of the Lee Pace that you were craving in a better <laughs> role. <laughs> uh, and, and for me, it turns out that was uh, quite a lot. Um, and, and there's two parts of foundation, right, Christian? There, there's foundation and there's empire. And as, as could be inferred by the discussion already, I do find the empire parts of the show to be more compelling than the foundation parts. Okay, you, it wasn't just me. I did too, actually, and I and I felt like sort of weird about that. It it was kind of weird. Um, the the foundation parts can be interesting. I think there is good casting there as well. I think that there's certainly some very interesting characters uh, on on the foundation side of things. Um, and and to explain a bit, this is a far future setting where uh, humanity has gone completely galactic and they make a point at one point in the show of even explaining that no one is even sure at this point 
what the origins of humanity are before we went interstellar uh, and, and occupied all kinds of different worlds. Um, and, and so everyone is so used to space travel and thinking on massive, almost unthinkable scales of humanity uh, that the idea that something like the ruling genetic dynasty of this endlessly replicating series of imperial clones of the same person over and over again, um, the idea that that could come to an end, much like capitalism, is almost impossible for people to imagine. And yet through the wonders of math, and, and yes, actually that, is, that isn't even a joke, uh, it, is, it is math, Isaac Asimov says, that will allow us to imagine an alternative to this seemingly endless uh, thing and to picture our way into there being crises that will destroy the empire. Uh, it'll just take a really long time and we need to prepare what is initially cast as an encyclopedic project that will enable the survivors of crisis and revolution to rebuild uh, and, and rise from a dark age faster than they otherwise would. And that's the foundation. That, that's the idea of the opposing force to imperial might is a mathematically derived historical library and archive and encyclopedia. Except of course, there's a lot more weirdness and politics to that than uh, the erstwhile leader slash prophet of the foundation you know, immediately presents. Uh, and he withholds information and lies to people like nobody's business uh, in order to get his revolutionary project off the ground. Uh, and, and it all could have been paced a little bit better on that side. There were, there were actions that people took that I found, I, I was confused about motivation. There's a villain that's introduced who could probably best be described as having plot magical bastard armor, who I was more irritated by than anything for the number of episodes that she served as an antagonist. And that's all, and it was unfortunate because I think it was supposed to be an A and A plot where Lee Pace and the Empire is doing something and the Foundation is doing something. But because the Foundation part didn't land as well as it could have, it, that turned into less good B plot. And then we would go back over the Imperial side and I would be fascinated at how utterly inhuman the Imperial clones were presented and how uh, wonderful and magnetic a certain performance was. Yeah, no, I think that's, I can't do any better with the description. And I actually, I think beat for beat, agree with everything you just said, Tom. So I mean, <laughs> what? yeah, no, I mean, like the only thing I would add is like the real problem with the bastard plot armor uh, is the unfortunate racialization of that side of things as well, Indeed. which I will say would have been worse uh, if not for some of the plot maneuvers made at the very end of the show that I won't get into for spoilers uh, sakes, uh, for not spoiling things. Um, I think the show manages to not go into really politically treacherous territory by the end, mostly. Uh, but uh, it's a it's a good show. It's a messy show. I think people have to be okay with a bit of messiness. Oh, yeah. um, and I do hope they clean it up a little bit in the second season. I don't think it had as strong a first season as say like The Expanse, which I think has a similarly expansive scope. Um, what what was but, the messiness? Was it just like like 
problems with writing. It's the time shifting. It's the jumping back and forth between times, two sets of characters that certainly intersect, but that they're trying to maintain a lot of autonomous plot lines or semi-autonomous plot lines. But overall, I mean, the Lee Pace stuff, the Empire stuff was just like amazing. There's a moment where Lee Pace has to, you know, his character Empire Day has to go interact with essentially like a planet of religious fundamentalists uh and he has to do this like essentially a journey to mecca uh moment um but with some you know kind of twists uh spirals uh, as it were since it's the walk spiral i believe uh and there's just it's like so perfect there's just so many beats to it beats within beats in terms of like the twists about how empire does or does not believe in some kind of spiritual force and it's just done so well it it really is, um, and and there are cool elements of of those time skips where some of them are owing to how long space travel may take, depending on what method of space travel you're in. So for one character in particular, uh, it, it's a funny thought thinking that from her perspective, a lot happens in just about three days of her conscious experience. But because she uh, is in, you know, basically like frozen liquid escape pod transit for many years in between, for other characters, you know, what was her yesterday and her tomorrow, there's like a 30-year gap um, in between those. And on that side, it, it is a little messy because there are explanations for maybe why her character takes that path that I wasn't entirely satisfied with. Um, But the time skips are then made fascinating on the Imperial side because you have the same three actors playing the young version of the Emperor, the middle and the older version of the Emperor. And all three are alive at the same time so they can confer and share life experiences and issue judgments and that kind of thing. Uh, Except that because the show, even its first season, covers between, you know, 30 and 100 years of time, even though the actors portraying beginning, you know, early, middle, and end emperor remain the same, the characters shift. So, but, you know, the Lee Pace of 30 years in the future is playing the character that was the younger version of the emperor in the earlier scenes of the series. Uh, and the older one is now what the character that Lee Pace was playing uh, in the previous scenes. And that that version of things added something really cool to playing around with the time skips. Um, there was also an element of that that I was fascinated by where there is a a lot of the plot of Empire involves these clones being perfect replications of one another uh, with, with no deviation whatsoever, even though they encounter different life experiences, um, but physically identical and meant to be as identical in mannerism and responses as the clones can make themselves be, um, which is sort of a weird logical extension of, of monarchy uh, where you have this ideal of monarchy as just sort of an unending line of identical supreme rulers in every respect. And as a result, 
uh, the show to me plays out, okay, so you have this logical extension of monarchy, of empire, of dictatorship. How inhuman does that get? How quickly? And it turns out incredibly. Uh, the, the, the empire personified by these three people are not people at all. Um, and again, credit to the performers, this time of, of all three actors really who portray the empire, they, they do not seem like people and they don't interact very well with human beings either. <laughs> yeah, and the last, th- the last thing I'll say is to give a shout out to Jared Harris who plays uh, mm. Harry Selman and who folks probably know from Mad Men. Um, or Chernobyl, Chernobyl. Or Chernobyl or Fringe. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, Roger's giving me thumbs up. He's a great actor and he does pump so well, but mm-hmm. he has like one of those smiles that actually makes you want to smile, even as he can also be an arrogant bastard. And in that sense <laughs> kind of parallels or mirrors empire in his own way. He's the sort of like mathematical genius, although not the mathematical genius as it will turn out. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it, it's just, it's a great cast. It's a great show. Um, it's messy. If you're cool with some sci-fi mess, um, as we all should be, or I hope everybody is, um, you know, it's a fun show. Yeah. And it's on Apple Plus. We unsubscribed app from Apple Plus after we finished watching it because, you know, I am about watching to. Ted Lasso too. <laughs> right. I'm caught up on Ted Lasso. I watched the first season of Foundation. I think that means that I'm about to let that subscription lapse. Exactly. I was like, okay. But then of course I'm like, but what can I add? And so I added uh, stars for 99 cents a month, which I will cancel after the two 99 cents months only to watch the Land Before Time series with our two-year-old, which has been totally worth it. And Fivel, because they also have Fivel. I need to remember to cancel. I had gotten into this horrible I think because Disney was free and then HBO Max was free for some reason, and then I just forget to cancel. That's how they get you. That's like the that whole is point. literally yeah. the model. That is how they get you. That's I, that's their I, whole plan. I've been pretty good at <laughs> subscribing to Disney Plus for like a month at a time and then canceling it. Uh, and so I subscribed again for a month to watch Shang Chi and Black Widow. Black Widow, I didn't even bother finishing. I'm very burnt out on superheroes. Uh, Shang Chi is actually really good, but I also like it was actually lot, really so. surprisingly good. I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, and then I'm gonna watch Hawkeye, and then I'm gonna cancel it again. Oh, and I'm watching the Beatles Get Back documentary, which is also really interesting, if bloated. But just watching John and Paul interact is maybe worth, you know, seven and a half I, hours. I more. love that there's still dredging Beatles footage for new shows. I remember being probably middle school, maybe. I don't know. It was in the 90s when they released their cash in, latest, you know, app cash in of all of their number one singles just on an album called One. And there was an accompanying documentary to it, a very fluffy one, as I recall, that was probably about 90 minutes long. And it was billed in exactly the same way that they're billing Get Back of this like, never before seen footage of the Beatles interacting and jamming and coming up with their tunes. And it was like a televisual event because who knew how much more Beatles content there could possibly be in the world after that. Turns out, yeah. Turns out. A lot. 
Yeah. You know, I like this one because of its willingness to allow ephemera to just exist. So watching like Paul get annoyed about John Lennon, like not getting up very early. And then like George comes in and he's getting his coffee and it's just like, they're exchanging, how are you? And things like that. And, you know, there's Paul smoking a cigar and, you know, at like 10 in the morning or something <laughs> just like little stuff like that or yoko ono just sitting there always like right next to him just knitting or jotting down poetry mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that sounds all right i'm up I'm, I'm up for more yoko ono footage yeah um, it's too long it's fascinating like <laughs> you know I'm, i still keep waiting for the orcs to like turn up but um <laughs> Where are the space orcs? We ask. I know. We watch I know. the Beatles documentary. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's set in the UK, so you got to have like Warhammer orcs, right? Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. We should call it. Um, it is good to see you two, as always. Uh, and we'll be back for some more podcasting goodness soon. 